What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today, my guest is Gregory Deal. And his brand new book just came out. It's called Everyone is an Entrepreneur. All right. So I first uh, learned about Gregory through one of his previous books, The Influential Author. And uh, I think I mentioned it in this conversation, but as much as I read uh, books for authors, since, you know, I dabble in a little bit of writing, I found his book and I, I loved it so much because he actually offered something different and unique and it was awesome. So when this book was coming out, I hit him up. I'm like, hey, Gregory, can I get a, a review copy? And I checked this book out. So this book is really interesting. You'll hear us talk about it in this conversation. But uh, Gregory, uh, you know, he's American, but he's a traveler and he currently lives in Armenia. And the book discusses, you know, what a, a post-Soviet, you know, nation looks like. And, you know, some of it is his experiences where these people don't even really understand, you know, the ability to become an entrepreneur. So Gregory wrote this book. And it was interesting to me because, you know, I've had my criticisms of capitalism and all this. But, you know, I kind of noticed the things that we take for granted uh, here in the United States, if you're somebody like me who sees these kind of issues. So it's amazing to read this book from Gregory and see what it's like in other parts of the world. And yeah, so we talk about, you know, the differences, what it's like, what people take for granted, but also just a bunch of different topics involving entrepreneurship and creating. So if you're somebody, you know, who is looking to bring in some extra income or you hate your job and have been like, oh, I want to, you know, be my own boss and all these other things, like Gregory's book is a great place to start because aside from just talking about what entrepreneurship is and all these other things, but he has some great tips, advice, insight from his years of experience running his own companies, being in, uh, a self-published author, all sorts of stuff. So I love this conversation. I love Gregory's writing. So head down to the description. Make sure you are following Gregory over on social media. This book is out now. So head out, grab a copy. It is phenomenal. Even if you're not an entrepreneur, even if you're just somebody interested in the topics of like, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, capitalism and other things like that this is a great book so make sure you check it out all right but before we get started if you're new make sure you are following me over on social media at the rewired soul on instagram and uh, twitter i've also been doing a bunch of stuff over on tiktok around books so follow me over there and make sure you are following and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any upcoming episodes so many amazing authors like gregory and many others coming up to make sure you are subscribed, all right? But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Gregory Deal about his brand new book, Everyone is an Entrepreneur. All right. Hello, Gregory. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Great. So it's a nice evening in Armenia now. It's yeah. Get warm yeah. finally. It's the beginning <laughs> of spring at last. Yeah. No, I'm I'm here in Las Vegas and it's uh it's starting to it's starting to heat up, but I, I dread the the extreme heat. How hot does it get over in Armenia like summertime? Uh, it can get fairly hot in the city. I'm I'm somewhat more elevated in Calavan village here, so it's the Temperatures aren't quite as extreme, which is nice during the summer. Never, I never need air conditioning. Ah, uh, gotcha. So, so yeah, I want to, I want to kind of like dive into why you moved to Armenia and stuff like that. But first, for all the lovely listeners out there, uh, we're we're here to talk about your newest book. Everyone is an entrepreneur. Uh, I was introduced to you from one of your previous books, The Influential Author, which I loved. One of the better books I've read. But anyways. Uh, for those who don't know you, give us a little bit of your background, books you've written, and and what led you to writing this book. Yeah, well, uh, what's relevant certainly for this book is my background in travel and uh, working and living in many different countries, which is kind of what gave me the perspective to try to understand the subject of everyone as an entrepreneur, which is why people in post-Soviet countries like here in Armenia have a very 
odd way of thinking about economics and entrepreneurship mm -hmm. that doesn't really make sense to the Western mind because so many things that are obvious to Americans and probably Canadians and most of Western Europe just like don't really exist as concepts here. And it really hinders their ability to think creatively, to become financially independent, or even just to optimize the productive output of their actions. Mm. So I, I grew up in California, but I started traveling as soon as I was 18. I'm 33 now. So that's about 15 years of world travel experience to about 50 different countries. And, um, Besides this book, this is my fifth book. So the, my previous books were all about business and travel and personal development, but this is the first one with such a heavy emphasis on cultural conceptions mm. of economics and entrepreneurship. Although my first book was also a, a business book called Brand Identity Breakthrough. And the one you mentioned, the influential author, is partially about giving people advice to, to write books that matter, meaningful nonfiction mm -hmm. books, but also then business advice about how to successfully do that as a self-publisher or, or small press author. So I, I, I've worn a few different hats, but they're all kind of thematically connected. You, you'll see that yeah. if you read all of my books, even the ones that seem to be about different subjects, there's always a certain core thread, a certain set of principles that show up in everything I write, which is um, really, yeah, about understanding yourself, understanding mm -hmm. the environment you're in, the laws of reality and how to make the most of them. I think this is probably the most important book I've written mm. in the sense that if the right people read it, it could totally change their paradigm of money and business and economics and, and how to control their life. So, you know, hopefully the Armenian people will read it soon too. It is yeah. being translated into Armenian now, but also I think Westerners would get a lot from seeing how these things look on the other side of the world and even kind of like questioning their own uh, assumed understanding of how basic economic and entrepreneurial concepts work. Yeah, no, for sure. I've, I, you know, I've been having, you know, that, that entrepreneurial style since like high school, right? I'm like, wait, I can do this, make a little bit of money, you mm -hmm. know, and all this other stuff. But, you know, reading the book, it, it is interesting seeing like, cause you, you have a lot of stories in there about you know, uh, just conversations with people in, in the village and hiring people to help you out, like with your house and all these other things. And, and yeah, like <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, that concept isn't there. So when you were, uh, when you were working on this book and you kind of, you know, got the idea for it, did you, how much like research into the history of like Soviet, like, you know, mm -hmm. communism and all these other things, how much research did you have to do to fully understand what happened or where they're at now? Or is that something you already mm -hmm. were kind well, of familiar I with? From the beginning, I didn't want it to be a predominantly Soviet history book. Those yeah. books already exist and they're probably much better than anything I could write or research on my own. But I do have to make certain references to certain mm -hmm. historical events. But if you notice, most of the references I make to the Soviet past, the Soviet history, they're not about, well, this leader took control in this year and implemented these policies. It's more about how those things generally influence the mentality of people, the culture. And of mm -hmm. course, I have to describe it in a generic way because I'm using my examples predominantly from Armenia because that's where I've been living the last three years, though I have traveled to a few other post-Soviet countries like Ukraine and Georgia. So I've seen things there too. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll talk about the fact that the Soviet Union worked this way, caused people to think and act this way. It caused them mm -hmm. to have this conception of like the concept of speculation, which was like one of the worst crimes you could commit in yeah. the Soviet Union. The, the idea of buying something specifically for the purpose of expecting it to go up in value and reselling it to other people. Mm -hmm. Like that's a core function of any business. That's literally mm -hmm. what business is. Like that you you are that's what arbitrage is. The the mm -hmm. idea that some people value some things more than other people. So if you can move things from a state of relatively low subjective value to relatively high subjective value, you can profit from that transaction and that's how more people get more of what they want. Yeah. That's what business is. Right? Yeah. So the idea that you could go to prison for engaging in speculation, which basically just meant buying anything other than what you personally plan to use in the immediate future mm -hmm. is crazy. And it explains a lot when you try to understand some of the weirder concepts people have here about how they spend their money or, or the tools they acquire or don't acquire, or like even just like stockpiling consumable goods that they might mm -hmm. use in the future. It's, it's like 
so many of these things that would seem obvious to somebody who just has basic economic sense in the West, it's they, they either don't get it at all or they're like traumatized away from even thinking about, no, don't yeah. do that, that's evil. It's like a religious concept to them or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one one part that I really found interesting about the book was, uh, I'm not sure how old the kid or kids were, but they were doing mm -hmm. a little work for you. Like the dad got like pissed yeah. about that. So, uh, so what, can you kind of uh, break that down, not to give them too much away, but like how, how was that? And what, what are like, you know, because since it's a post-Soviet state, right? So people are kind of getting out of that and you're teaching people mm -hmm. about, you know, this, that. So uh, what, what was his kind of mindset of like, don't pay my kids to do work for you? Yeah. You know, so, and that was in the section I was talking about mindsets people have about mm -hmm. money. And, and the whole point of the book is that even though the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore, the gulags are gone, communism is gone, you're not going to go to prison for engaging in business. Uh, there are still so many of these ideas that have just kind of recycled and remained alive mm -hmm. in the culture, passed on from parents to children and, and grandchildren. And one of them is the general conception of money. And it's so different than how we think of it in the West, which is like, uh, and we're taught to revere it in a certain way, which can have its own problems, but mostly we see it as like the capacity to create opportunities. You can spend your money on mm -hmm. things you want and you should want, you should strive to, to make money in an ethical way. And children are like celebrated for running lemonade stands on the sidewalk or mowing yeah. their neighbor's lawns for a couple of dollars. You know, that's like seen as, as a sign of ambition and discipline and, and being forward thinking. You know, mm -hmm. we, we celebrate those things, but here it's like the opposite. And the example I gave in that section of the book is that when a couple of the children who live near me, who, I, who I've interacted with fairly regularly, so uh, I'm trying to, to really drive home the point that it's not because like the father didn't like me or, yeah. or anything like they know me, you know, a couple of these kids about 10 years old show up at my house because they see I'm paying some of the adults to, to do renovations on my house. And they just innocently asked me in Armenian if, if there's work they can do because they want to make money too. And I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, well, I mean, no, I can't have you doing construction on my house, yeah. but I, you know, I want to like nurture this little spark, this curiosity in you. So I look around and, and I find some little outdoor chores they can do for me, you know, real things that are actually valuable because they mm -hmm. save me the trouble of having to do them. And I say, okay, I'll, I'll pay you yeah, a dollar each for essentially 15 minutes of work, which by the way, is a really good wage here considering mm. most people make like a dollar an hour. So oh, wow. yeah, that's, that's the equivalent of, of like. $20 an hour in the yeah. US or something for these kids, you know, and, um, and, and they agree. And then they do the work, you know, competently, they get the job done and I pay them as agreed and, and, and they leave. I'm like, okay, I feel good about that encounter. I hopefully I encouraged and nurtured something in mm -hmm. them that, that could grow over time. And the next day, the father shows up at my house, really mad at me. I rate. And I just kept, I, at first I was trying to figure out why, because my Armenian isn't perfect, but I was like trying to figure out what is this guy so mad about, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I thought it was maybe like that he thought I was making his kids work like slaves or something or doing something dangerous or something that would expose them to like animal feces or something, which by the way, they do all these things at home, like doing chores is a regular mm -hmm. part of life here. And most people keep pigs or chickens or something, you know, so they're, this is like normal life for them. They weren't doing anything they haven't done a hundred times at home. And I kept, can't figure out like, why, why is this guy so mad at me? Like what, what huge cultural taboo did I commit here? And it was because I had paid them money. That's what I figured out. And I had this confirmed by other Armenian friends like, yes, that would go, of course, that would make him upset. It wasn't that anything to do with me. It wasn't that they had done work for me. It was that I had paid them money. Like mm -hmm. that was seen as a, like kids should have nothing to do with money. Money is a burden that the man of the house has to deal with. And mm -hmm. it's wrong to expose kids and to ruin their innocence and get them thinking like mercantilists, little demons or something like yeah. that. That's really the association they have, that it's like a necessary evil the father has to deal with. And how dare you even introduce the concept to children, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and so, okay, I will, I will never do anything like that again without explicit permission from the parents. Sorry, in the West, this is like not a big deal at all. Like everybody yeah. does stuff like this. But then I followed it up with shortly after some older teenagers, 15, 16, 17, 18, also started showing up at my house, showing the same interest. And I was a little more cautious with them, but I'm like, okay, they're, they're older. And I asked, do you have your parents' permission? And so we worked out an arrangement where they could come to my house fairly regularly and, and just work for a fixed hourly wage because mm. there's 
tons of projects going on here, direct construction on the house, outdoor work with like footpaths and retaining walls, you know, all mm. stuff that requires basic construction work and competency. You know, you, you can't be an idiot. You do have to have yeah. some skills <laughs> and I am giving you power tools to work with. And, um, it turned out to be a really profitable ongoing relationship for all of us. It's the best source of money these teenagers have in this village because there's not a lot of places to go get a job here. And they're learning really valuable practical skills, the mm -hmm. stuff they don't already know because they're working alongside older adults who know, you know, are genuinely masters of their craft. They're learning how to build things, how to fix things, refurbish things. And so not only am I paying them a pretty decent wage on hours that are flexible mm -hmm. for them because they have to go to school and stuff, but you know, they're actually learning how to do useful stuff. And if they smart and keep this entrepreneurial mentality that they're developing here, hopefully they could find other ways to go apply in life and make money with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's interesting, you know, uh, just, uh, because my son, he, he turned 13 in December, but I've been getting him, you know, trying to get him into that mindset. Uh, like last summer I had him doing a bunch of work. I, I taught him how to like fill out some spreadsheets for me for some of the stuff that I'm doing. And I'm like, mm -hmm. Hey, this takes something off my plate and everything. And now he's getting a little bit more into, you know, what you were talking about, like that subjective value. Um, he's, uh, selling a lot of his old Legos on eBay. Like one of them was mm -hmm. worth $200. It was insane. It was this little mini figure, but he's kind of learning, you know, these little things, but you know, I want him to be prepared for when he goes out there. And, you know, this kind of transitions into, you know, this next topic I want to discuss because I want him to understand that, Hey, if you develop, you know, your skills or your knowledge or whatever, like you're not going to have to fully rely on, you know, a company or whatever. Like, for example, I got laid off last year. I'm working at a place again, but in between time, I was fine supporting myself mm -hmm. and, and everything. And I wanted my, I want my son to know that that's possible as well. So one thing I want to ask you, like, you know, with all your travels and being from California, very liberal state and everything like that with some of the, you know, stuff going on in the nine, uh, the United States, do you see like people in the United States, not fully appreciating, uh, this aspect of like capitalism and being able mm -hmm. to, you know, have some of this agency. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we definitely take it for granted in the West. And that's what I try to open the book with, that if if you are somebody who's lived your entire life in the West, it's so hard to imagine what it's like not to have the knowledge and associations that you take for granted. Like even the basic freedoms to buy and sell what you want to, mostly because we don't live in a completely free society, even in the West, there are still tons of restrictions, but it's nothing like what life was like in the Soviet Union, where, you know, your food was rationed, there was very limited supply in what you, what you even could eat or wear or, or spend your free time doing. If you, mm -hmm. if you weren't directly forced to do things one way, you were given a very narrow range of options, which is one reason why any foreign made goods that became available in the black market were just instantly highly regarded and, and either bought to be resold because somebody somewhere would want an American pair of blue jeans or vinyl mm -hmm. records from a band that doesn't exist in the Soviet Union. Uh, so you, you really can't imagine what that's like if you come from a mostly free place where you have so many options and you're almost completely free to figure out how do I want to spend my life? How do I want to make money? How do I want to spend my money? What kind of, what are my values? Who, who do I want to be in the world? Like just mm -hmm. that's, that's a freedom you take for granted that somebody is not forcing you most of the time to, to answer those questions in a very specific way. And so, and I comment on this a fair amount in the book that even though a place like Armenia is obviously still economically developing, there's still a long way to go. Uh, there's still some very basic things that people just don't understand here that they really, really need to, to secure a brighter future. It's also somewhat foreseeable that in the next couple of decades, a place like here could be significantly better than it is now because there's, there's really, you can really only go up from here, mm. you know, and, and more and more young people are recognizing the problems that came with the way that their parents and grandparents lived and want to do better than them. So they're more open to these kinds of ideas. And there are lots of young people here who just love hearing me talk about this stuff because there's almost no one locally thinking this way and acting this way, the, the so-called American way of thinking about these things. Yeah. And, uh, whereas a place like California, uh, people are so unaware of the principles that have enabled them to become affluent and free and live the, the very comfortable lives they do that they're quickly throwing them away. I 
draw a dichotomy very clearly between the entrepreneurial mentality and the bureaucratic mentality. And, and the bureaucratic mentality is essentially the one that just tries to force things to work a certain way, regardless if they, of, if they actually do work that way, the entrepreneur has to work within the, the limits of reality to produce the outcome they want. Whereas the bureaucrat just says, I want it to be this way. So I'll throw you in jail if you don't act this way. And so in a place like California and probably many other parts of the U.S., you're seeing more and more pro-bureaucratic, anti-entrepreneurial attitudes. And the only possible conclusion from that is that people are less and less free to produce wealth and live the way they want to. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, I think there's a lot of potential that, that the young people could learn to see the benefits of thinking and acting freely and becoming self-employed or or starting their own businesses, mm-hmm. or just finding ways to develop knowledge and skills that can be applied productively and take control of their lives. And if enough people start to do that in the new generations, you could see a very big cultural and economic shift here very quickly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and one of my favorite uh, parts of the book were, was uh, when you were, I think it was the the chapter was called like entrepreneurship applied in reality, right? Mm-hmm. And you discuss like these excuses that you come across, right? And, you know, one of the reasons was my favorite part because, you know, uh, I got sober in 2012. I've worked in drug and alcohol addiction treatment and everything like that. And, you know, I've, I've worked with people who say why they can't get sober or why they can't get back on their feet and everything. And I'm proof that you can do that, right? Mm-hmm. So I try to get rid of all those excuses. And when I'm talking with a bunch of other people, when they're like, Chris, you know, how are you, you know, surviving when you're not working for a company and everything? And I'm like, because I've, done all these things i've you know created my own value and taught myself all these different skills and all that so with your travel all around the world and everything like that and you know some of your experiences here in armenia like what are some of the common excuses you hear from people about why they can't make money as an entrepreneur or why they can't do it like what are some things that we should look out for for any listeners who might have some of these excuses in their mind yeah, sure. Uh, and that, that's another ironic thing that even people who grow up in the West with freedom, they still do inherit some really strange cultural ideas about what it means to be an entrepreneur or to run mm. a business. Like a lot of it is, is a form of permission seeking. Like if you, if you understand entrepreneurship as a mindset and economics as a series of universal principles that apply in every situation, just like the laws of physics, uh, you are an entrepreneur so long as you are working in, in accordance with those principles, no matter what your business ends up looking like. I've talked to so many people, people way more financially successful than me, you know, who run like big companies who will say they'll gatekeep entrepreneurship, essentially. They'll say, no, no, that this is only for people like me who, who can run huge, massive, successful companies. Everyone else needs to rely on like state assistance and employment from people like me. Uh, they'll take the attitude that like you're business doesn't count unless you have an office full of full-time employees, you know, and, and you've invested so many thousands of dollars into it, completely ignoring that entrepreneurship is just the calculated exchange, production and exchange of value. And mm-hmm. how that can happen is infinitely varied. Like, why does it matter if, if I'm directly employing someone within my company structure or I hire, if I outsource it or hire a freelancer to do it? What, mm-hmm. what effect does that have upon the value that I am creating in the world, right? If I need mm-hmm. to ship products halfway around the world, do I need to form my own postal service or courier yeah. service within my operation to say they're my employees, or can I just hire the post office or a private mm-hmm. courier to do that for me? Why? Well, they're not my employees anymore, so I guess I'm not an entrepreneur. This, this exact same process is happening. I produce yeah. something of value that somebody on the other side of the planet wants, and I am creating demand for this person's shipping services and the people who manufacture the cardboard boxes and the packing peanuts and the people who refuel the trucks that drive these things because I have produced something that people want. Mm-hmm. Whether I'm directly paying these people or it's another service entirely, makes no difference. I'm an entrepreneur because I have produced and I manage the exchange of value. That's that's all that matters. If you put yeah. it in those simple terms, it's so much less intimidating to people who, who think about like registering huge businesses and, and, and having to have a bunch of money saved up in the bank. And no, you just produce something of value. You convince other people that it's worth value and that, and that they are willing to spend money on it. And boom, you're an entrepreneur. Yeah. So uh, there was one part 
uh, about, I think, I think the guy made tables or something like that. And this is something I run into a lot mm. when I talk with people who, you know, because I, I know a lot of people who are hard on money and everything like that. And I'm like, okay, like, is there something else you could do? You know, preferably something you like doing that could provide value that you could get money for in return. But a lot of people think their thing won't provide value. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there's also gauging how much it's worth and all of that. So what, what do you suggest to people? Like, how do they look inward at their own personal skills or if they wanted to find an entrepreneurial venture to figure out what they can create that creates value? You know what I mean? So they can make a little extra cash on the side or whatever it is. I think they have to stop thinking of it as an all or nothing thing, which is mm. kind of like what I was just saying that, well, okay, sure. I like making furniture in my free time, but is that going to support my family? Uh, maybe, but, or, or maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe you just sell one table, but maybe that was the amount you get from that was worth the effort you had to put into making it and finding someone to buy it. And that that's the example I was trying to give to one of my neighbors here who, who he, he has like this idea that a business has to take on the same form that he sees his neighbors doing. He has a bunch of cows and he wanted to start a cheese business because he, he milks his cows and sells his milk to cheese producers. So I said, okay, well, I guess I could just start my own cheese business because then my milk is worth more if I sell it as cheese. I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, that makes sense. Sure. But also you don't know anything about cheese and you're going to have to spend thousands of dollars in this machinery and then figure out how to package it and figure out how to produce a type of cheese that isn't already being mass produced by thousand other cheese companies. Then you have to figure out how to distribute it and sell it to these, to supermarkets. Like, could you do all those things? Yes, you could learn how to do all those things, but do you want to, or are you just yeah. doing that because it's the first business you can think, well, I have cows, I guess I should do cheese. Yeah. And that's you know, like, you should do a business that you're actually interested in that having to, to learn how to do all these things will, will actually be rewarding to you inherently and, and that you're not just copying what you see other people doing. And the reason I suggested making like furniture and tables and shit to him is because I saw he enjoyed doing that yeah. and he had the knowledge and skills to do that. And so I asked him, could you make a table? He's like, yeah, of course I know how to make tables. I know how to make chairs. I know how to make everything. Okay. Could you make one table and find one person who would buy it from you at a reasonable price, a price that you would be compensated in equitable, which you consider to be an equitable amount for the time you have to put it into it and the amount you have to spend on materials. Mm -hmm. um, I, maybe, I, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Could you find out? Could you try it one time and see if it works? And hey, maybe it won't. Maybe you'll spend days looking for one person to buy this measly little table and you'll barely make any money off of it and it just won't be worth it to you. Or it might work really well. You might realize, mm -hmm. oh yeah, it's actually really easy to sell tables. Everybody needs tables and no one around here is is doing a good job filling the table demand or the chair yeah. demand or the couch demand or, or whatever. The point is just to try new things that don't require a ton of upfront investment, like thousands of dollars in cheese making machinery that you don't know how to use mm -hmm. and, and see if you could find a way to derive an ethical, equitable profit from it. And if you can, Maybe see if you could scale it up more from there. Why do you have to start with, no, this is to be an all or nothing thing. Either this is going to make me rich or I'm going to go broke trying to make this. Why? Just yeah. produce something valuable and convince other people that it's valuable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what comes to mind, and I'm curious, like, your thought process behind this, because as you're, like, going through this, like, I'm like, yes, 100%. I agree. Like, it's like, just try it. Like, what do you have to lose? Just go around, ask some people, you know, whatever. Right. But he's, he spent more time arguing with me about whether it would work than just trying and seeing if it would work. Yeah. Did you realize the fallacy there? Yeah, exactly. So, so with, with what you're doing, like you write, like writing a book takes time. Right. And you've mm. written on a, a variety of topics, even though, you know, you can kind of connect them all. Right. But how do you gauge like, this is something that I'm going to dedicate this much time to like, how do you overcome that fear? Like, what if this book completely just flopped, which I don't think it is, you know, I'm going to spread mm. the word about it. But is that fear in the back of your mind? Like I am spending weeks or months on this project and I don't know if it's going to sell, you know what I mean? Because now yeah. that time is gone, you know? Yes, uh, that is something I address in the influential author too. Uh, but it's a couple of things. One, uh, books are not my only source of income. I have lots of micro businesses running in mm. my life that 
sometimes stop making me money for months at a time. And other times I just get a huge windfall of, well, I guess a lot of people wanted to buy that from me this month. Cool. Yeah. Great. You know, so I, I don't have all my eggs in one basket, but with me writing books, uh, I only write a book if it's something I'm really, really interested in talking mm. about or that I'm already actively really talking about. Most of the content of everyone is an entrepreneur comes directly from conversations I've already had with people, mm. concepts I've tried to explain to my neighbors or to to Americans who want to know what my life is like here, or just people. I'm always talking about economics and stuff because I'm really interested in the subject. Uh, so that, first of all, makes it much easier to write the book rather than trying to like figure out what should what should I be talking about here? You know, no, I'm mm -hmm. writing it because I already know what to talk about. And I only write it if I know I can make it a really good book that is saying something that isn't already being said. There are tons mm. of economics and entrepreneurship and sales and branding books out there, uh, but I haven't seen anybody approaching it from this perspective, mm. which is partially only possible because I have a really unique perspective. Very few people are living the life I'm living yeah. and could write about things in the way I'm writing about them. So if I can't make it a really good and original book, I don't bother in the first place. I'm not going to spend those months working on it. Mm. And then once I know I have a good worthwhile book out there that at least some specific type of person is going to derive great value from reading, then I don't have to have that any nagging fear in my mind. Well, did I just produce a bad book? And that's why no one's buying it. Mm. If no one's buying it, it means I need to fix something about my sales and marketing, essentially, because I know I have a good product. So I'm just not getting it in front of the mm. right people, or there's something wrong with the sales copy, or I don't have enough positive reviews on it. And all of those questions are much easier to answer than wondering, did I just produce a bad book? And is that yeah. way everyone is ignoring it or hates it or whatever? I know it's a good book. I mean, obviously this is a subjective evaluation, but I know for a certain type of person, there is great value to be had by reading yeah. this book that they're not going to get from any other book. I'm very confident in saying that about all my books and any other books I will write, I'm going to have that same attitude about. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's how I justify that. Plus all the money that goes into like cover design and formatting and stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's not something you should do unless uh, you find the task inherently rewarding, which I do. Educating people about what I consider to be extremely important subjects is inherently rewarding to me. Even the idea that even just a few people might read this and have a complete paradigm shift about money and it could completely change the course of their lives, that alone is is like worthwhile to me. Even if just a few people get that reaction, let alone the potential for thousands. So that that's what I would say to people who might be interested in, in pursuing a similar kind of heavy upfront investment production process like as is required with writing a book is you really have to know your reasons for doing it. And it can't just be because, well, my neighbor runs a cheese business. Why shouldn't I? Well, right. everyone's writing a book these days. Why shouldn't I spend the next six months of my life trying it and seeing what happens? No, you should do it because you have something worth spending six months of your life doing. Yeah, yeah. It's something I'm always uh, uh, thinking about. But yeah, there's like this checklist, right? Because I'm always doing this kind of like risk analysis. Like, okay, the time I'm going to invest because it, I could be spending it over here and everything like that. But yeah, kind of like what you said, like, uh, you know, my YouTube channel that, you know, blew up. And, you know, has like 80,000 subscribers. It all started with like, hey, this is something I'm talking about already, which was like mental health and everything. Because people are always asking me questions. I'm like, hey, how about I just put it up on YouTube because maybe it can help more people. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. And then it started like kind of snowballing and all that. Um, so, so yeah, it's, you know, a lot, a lot of it's like doing research and seeing like where that gap is. Like you were saying, nobody's come from this particular angle uh because i read a ton of these books that's one of the reasons i enjoyed the influential author like during that time when i first read the influential author by the way i was like i like just a dozen books for like self-publishing mm -hmm. non-fiction and everything and i've read somebody, most of them yeah, yeah <laughs> pretty, they're the pretty repetitive thing. yeah yeah then i came across yours i'm like oh my god someone's saying something different um yeah. so so with with this too and just you know staying on the topic of writing a little bit um what are your thoughts on, you know, the, the opportunity to self-publish? Cause that's another thing about this entrepreneurial uh, mindset. We live in this time where there's not as many gatekeepers. Like right now, mm -hmm. if I wanted to, which I'm not going to, I could write thousands of words today and publish it up on my Kindle. Boom. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but like you said, there's time and your own money that goes into cover designs, editors, you know, uh, you record your own uh, audiobooks, like you've taken yeah. on a lot of that stuff. So there's so many things that we can do. So like, have you, like, do you ever think about like, you know, 
pitching to a big publisher. And I, I'm really asking for me too, because that's something I've been on the fence about for like some of my ideas that I have full. I'm like, should I write like a whole book proposal and try to go that route or just keep on the self-publishing? Like where's, where's the pros and cons in your, in your eyes for that? I think if you're already in a position where big publishers want to work with you, you'll probably already know that it will be either because <laughs> you're, you're writing a book that they know will sell millions of copies or you already have a huge following, right? Yeah. Uh, but for 99% of people who think, yeah, I could write a really good book about something, that's not going to be the case, right? If it is, then yeah, export that option at the very least. But then again, maybe if you already have a huge social media following, you, you could just leverage your own audience to get your first few thousand sales out the mm -hmm. door, you know, and at that point you have tons of social proof. Uh, but for most people who just want to produce something that they know will be valuable and get it out into the world and, and hope that it finds its way into the right hands, self-publishing makes that much, much easier. So long as you already have, you have at least the wherewithal to create the damn book and edit it and proofread it, get it to, you know, a professional standard of completion. And then the rest is just figuring out how to do the stuff you don't necessarily know how to do. I'm not a graphic designer. I don't want to deal with any of that crap, but I, I know how to hire the right kinds of people and, and direct that process mm. to, I really like the, the cover of everyone is an entrepreneur. No, that is a really good cover. Yeah. Like, I was really yeah, happy with that. I dig it. Because it, it, it's a very human centric. There's the Soviet theme, obviously the, the red and the yellow, and you can see there's a statue of Lenin and the, and the hammer and sickle, uh, but it's a very human-centric, positive mm -hmm. cover, right? It's, it's not just explicit, like, tear down the Soviet Union. It's like, this is about people learning mm -hmm. how to take control of their lives, which is what the book is, right? So that's the message I wanted to convey there. See, and I know those things. I was able to give a very detailed brief to the cover designer who worked on this, who herself is Russian, incidentally. Mm. So she, she has some personal knowledge of all this, but I was able to very clearly tell her what kinds of qualities I was looking for way beyond just, well, it should be red because of the Soviet Union. But no, like, no, I want it to, to convey the message of this is human centric. This is about ordinary people taking control of their lives, so on and so forth, which made her able to do her job much better, which is why I have such a good cover now. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you never think in those ways, then, then you don't, you just, you know, might hire somebody to produce something with, with an image or, or a shape or or a color scheme you happen to like and say, okay, let's print, you know, but maybe it's really not conveying the message you want it to, or it doesn't even look like a professionally designed cover. So that's mm -hmm. the kind of thing I talk about in the influential author that it's not enough just to say, I have something worth writing 50,000 words about, but you really have to think, what is this going to be like as a book? What is a professionally produced book? What, mm -hmm. what role does it play in people's lives? What should it look like? And that applies to the interior formatting too, and how you do the audiobook narration, whether you do that yourself or you hire someone to. All of the all of these things have professional standards. You got to decide which ones you're comfortable taking on yourself and which ones you need to outsource to someone else. Yeah, and you know one of the other things I uh, that you have a section on that I think a lot about. Uh, you talk about knowledge and skill, right? Mm -hmm. And you know that's something I think about a lot because there's so much out there. Uh, and I have just taught myself so many things like, uh, like I'm not an amazing graphic designer, but I taught myself Photoshop for my YouTube channel. I taught myself, you know, video editing software, and I just like to learn. And I, you know, I, I think people like you, and there's many others who are like that naturally curious. And it's like, Hey, how do I self-publish a book, for example, mm -hmm. and the information is out there. So in that, you know, knowledge and skill section, you know, what I just keep coming back to thinking is people don't invest the time into themselves. Like I, I just, I, I just don't think people understand how valuable that is to even carve out an hour of your day to play around with something, to learn. Uh, if you have a question, see if the answer is out there. Is somebody already doing it? Can you learn it? But mm -hmm. I don't see people taking advantage of that. And I think that's a major roadblock for the that's entrepreneur mindset and realizing that hey there's ways that you can do this so what what do you think blocks people from finding the time to just invest in themselves and creating more value through just you know education you know well um i have two chapters that directly address this the first one is called knowledge and skill it's literally the first chapter of the book mm -hmm. and because that creates the foundation the context to which all other discussions in the book about, you know, what wealth is, how do we produce more of it? How do we take control of it? It has to, it, it initially always goes back to what you know and can do. 
all, all value of any type, uh, tools, consumption, goods, commodities, currencies, which of course is how most people think, well, though, he's a millionaire, he's, he's wealthy. He has a lot of currency, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> which I'm actually making the point is actually the least important form of wealth. It is the downstream derivative of first having knowledge and skills that you mm-hmm. apply through tools to systematize and scale and so forth. And then the other one is about the, what I call the education, the learning economy of scale, right? Understanding that every new thing you learn, just like every new tool you ever acquire, uh, if you know how to apply it in a scaled kind of way, could it, could end up being a very valuable investment for you. I, I use the simple example of if, if a button comes off your coat, how do yeah. you solve that problem? Most people will just hire a, a seamstress or a tailor or whatever to fix it for them because it'll be pretty cheap and not take very long. But also you could spend 20 minutes learning how to sew a button and, and buying a sewing machine or a needle and thread or whatever it might be just to fix that one problem. And it will it will not be equitable the first time you do it, probably. You will have to invest an inordinate amount of time and possibly money into new tools and resources just to fix that one problem. But if you knew that you would need to replace hundreds of buttons over the course of your life, then learning that knowledge and acquiring those tools would be equitable. You'd be able to foresee the long-term value of it. That's that's what we call economies of scale, right? That's how big mm-hmm. factories operate. They, they can produce things at a, at a level op- of operation that people only producing a small amount of something can't. That's how all learning works too. Every new thing you ever learn, even if it just starts as, as a mild curiosity, oh, how does that work? Maybe I could do something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it may just, you may just learn it for the sake of curiosity itself, which is also great. Like I, I always encourage people pursuing their curiosities, their passions, their interests, even if they don't see any way they're ever going to make money from it, mm-hmm. right? But when you learn enough things and, and maybe... It's, it's more about finding the connection between seemingly unrelated things that you learn that gives you a, a perspective or the ability to do something that people who just highly specialize in one thing can't do. You have way exponentially greater opportunities to apply what you know to produce wealth, which doesn't just mean money. Money is how we exchange wealth. It's a very convenient way to do that, but you don't know what you might be able to do in your life, be able to mm-hmm. build, be able, be able to accomplish with all the new things you learn. So knowledge and then indirectly skill, which is applied knowledge, like what you have to do with your body to use your knowledge, uh, is always the foundation of every other form of wealth you could produce. So if, if you wanted to focus on having as much security in life and your ability to produce to make money, for example, or to produce wealth of any kind, it makes sense to start with your intangible assets, things like what you know how to do, things which Mm -hmm. you understand about how reality works. So why would you ever stop learning new things? Why would you just accept like one trade or one career path? Okay, well, I guess I make furniture now, so I'm just going to make tables (laughs) until I die. Why not constantly be learning new techniques or, or acquiring new tools or even things that don't seem directly related to carpentry? Yeah. Because maybe you'll find a way to monetize and, and apply those too in a systematic kind of way. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's crazy. I've actually been, I've, I've been talking about this uh, a lot lately because as I mentioned, I recently uh, went back to the, the working world like for a company because, you know, health insurance is cool and stuff like that. But anyways, uh, this is the best paying job I've had, ever had, and I'm a college dropout. This is purely mm-hmm. based on my experience, right? Because uh, my own writing, starting a YouTube channel, uh, you know, uh, self-publishing, uh, all that, I had to learn marketing. I had to learn like, okay, now that I've got this, how do I get that out there? And now I'm working for a company who's paying me in the realm of like, content and marketing. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it's because I've taken so much time because I've been curious, like, oh, how do I get this out there? Or, or uh, you know, books like yours or other books on just like how to capture your reader's attention and like finesse my writing style and all these other things. And like, just after a while, you see how it pays off more and more and more. And especially when I was in between jobs, I realized how much more I could be making for my skill. I used to write thousands of words for like less than a hundred dollars right and then i started doing some freelance work and mm-hmm. i was getting hundreds of dollars for like less than a thousand words i'm like wait a second <laughs> you know so I, I found that you know because i was working on my skill i became more valuable and all these other things but when it comes to this i'm, I'm curious if you've noticed this or you have thoughts on it but 
there seems to be, uh, and I hate to even reference him, uh, Gary V. Love Gary V. A lot of his stuff really helped, like, give me a mm -hmm. nice kick in the ass. But I think entrepreneurship gets a bad name because there's become like this weird entrepreneur cult that's just like hustle hard and all. And they just say these very vague things, but none yeah. of it's about creating something or providing value or anything like that. Oh, oh man, the stories I could tell you. I, I was a digital nomad, essentially. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I technically still am by some standards, uh, which is this really trendy, like online self-employment, remote working type of club that has become, I mean, I started traveling before any of this was a thing, but then about like five years into my travels, I realized there was this whole group of people called digital nomads who worked from a laptop and just go hang out at the beach yeah. in Bali or something. I was part of a group called the Dynamite Circle for a couple of years, which is like a, an online membership forum for these types of people. And I joined it thinking like, I'm going to learn some really valuable entrepreneurial skills and network with some really talented people. And, and some of that's true, but probably about 80% of it is just like bragging about how awesome their lifestyle is and hyping each other's sales pages for PDFs they're selling for a hundred dollars and, and just you eventually realize that most of the people in there kind of just arbitrarily chose like, I'm the guy who does online courses. I'm the guy who does this, this, and this, and I'm the mm -hmm. best that's ever been. Look at all these people who say I'm the number one expert on this thing. Look at my amazing sales page. And they've never done it before, or they've done it a couple of times, but they, but what they're an expert at is, is the online promotion aspect of yeah. it, right? So they're just, they just arbitrarily maybe randomly choose the thing and they say, I'm going to promote myself on this thing. And they're not actually good at the thing, but they're really good at promoting themselves. And it's all just this big circle jerk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now that's, it, I, I don't think Gary Vaynerchuk is entirely that kind of person. I, I don't know a lot about him. I think he's very good for some motivational things like, you mm -hmm. know, getting your button to gear and, and, and motivating you to like try things you've never tried before. But it does kind of play into that hustle culture of just just sell some bullshit just make some money just hustle just work hard you know and mm -hmm. and that's not what entrepreneurship is entrepreneurship is the creation management of exchange of value that's what wealth is mm -hmm. and there are an infinite number of ways you can do that and you can do that in a really like humanitarian principles. I'm really into education. That's all the, all the businesses I'm now concerned with, like trying to start here locally are about improving education, teaching people English better, teaching people the principles of economics and entrepreneurship, because mm. that is what I am genuinely passionate about. And I genuinely believe is probably the most valuable thing these people could learn. And I also want to make money doing that. And I also do want to promote the shit out of it and say like, this is amazing. This course will change your life. This book will change your life. It will give you a complete paradigm shift. But that's because I actually believe that. Yeah. I wouldn't have written the book if I didn't believe that. And I wouldn't be going through the trouble of trying to set up these courses and, and lectures and stuff here if I didn't believe that. Yeah. Because I have no time for bullshit in my life. I don't have the patience for it. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, yeah, I, I think... I think there is that now online entrepreneur, I don't know, hype, the image yeah. that, that turns a lot of people off in the same way that thinking to be an entrepreneur, I have to employ 20 people full-time and have a huge office and be making eight figures a year. And no, that's also bullshit. Yeah. But that's just another cultural artifact that has brainwashed you into thinking what a business has to look like. It's not yeah. that at all. That that whole online groups and communities, that's something I really got sucked into when I first started. And, and it was really the same thing. I'm like, oh, I'm going to learn a ton. I'm going to hear the experiences from others. And every now and then there were people who said, hey, I tried this. It didn't work. Anybody have ideas? And we kind of like brainstorm. But other than that, like you said, it was just a big circle jerk, right? And I'm just that, like, okay, but well, what, what are you providing? What are you making? You know, uh, yeah. are you building a community or is this, you know, whatever. And, and I, uh, you know, again, going back to like opportunity costs, uh, all the time I was spending in those, like in those rooms, I was taking away from, uh, educating myself about a new skill or practicing a new skill and being able mm -hmm. to provide more value and which in return I can get, you know, some money in my pocket and all these other things. So I do try to warn people about those groups and knowing when to steer clear because there are a lot where you can waste your time. But um, speaking of wasting time, uh, I, I'm curious your thoughts on um, doing some work 
for free for uh whether it's experience knowledge connections you know what i mean like do you think that's ever justifiable like maybe somebody is very good at what they do and you offer to do some work for free in order to be near them or get some of their knowledge you know what i mean or or is that a bad idea because that's something i'm always kind of on the fence about well i'll tell you this Every book I've ever written, I've given away dozens of mm. or hundreds of free copies of when yeah. it, when it was launched. Why did I do that? The, I mean, it's free to send like an ebook or, or MP3 files of an audiobook, but a lot of the times I'm sending out paperbacks and hardcovers, which cost mm. me a fair amount of money. Why do I do that? It's more exposure. Yeah. Because in the right hands, it could create. I mean, even if it's as simple as like they're leaving a review on Amazon, which is great. I need social proof. But if it's somebody who really loves the book and is connected to other people who might also love the book, then I, I'm just seeing that as a marketing investment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I'm, I'm a prime example. Like a lot of people in my audience, you know, some of them write and things like that or, you know, whatever it is. And, and yeah, so I 1000% agree because I've seen people kind of, uh, kind of shame that idea, but it is kind of like, you know, a, a marketing investment, right? Um, so how, how do you gauge, uh, whether your marketing mm. efforts are working? You know what I mean? Yeah, so you don't, that's, that's <laughs> so the hard part, Yeah, so you don't, but, that, don't but that's true of every investment you could ever make every dollar you ever spend. How do you know that you're going to get the value that you think you're getting from that money you spend on it? Mm. Yeah. How do I know if I, if I spend several hours of my time doing free work for you, I'm going to get something worthwhile out of it. That's worth those hours I invested. Mm. Depends what's, what explicit promises are you making me or who are you? And why did I get the impression that, that I think doing something free for you is going to help me? Am I just throwing a bunch of shit at the wall giving out as much free time as I can to anyone who will take it? Hopefully something good will come from it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because that's, that's one thing where, uh, you know, cause sometimes I'll like dive into my analytics, might be a little too much. Um, but yeah, see what's working, what's not, where am I wasting time or money or effort or all that. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, just to, just to kind of, uh, wrap things up and get people to check out this book, especially like one of the reasons I love your book and everything is because a lot of people are short on money. Things are expensive, especially right now. Uh, and there's ways to do these little side businesses. So with your book, like who is your target audience? Who are you hoping it gets in the hands of? Is it people just starting in entrepreneurship, people who have no idea? Like mm. who do you, who is your ideal reader that's going to check this out? Well, I could read you a short passage from the preface that kind of answers this. <laughs> Won't take too long. <laughs> Lay it on me. Yeah. First paragraph of the preface. I have written this book for the man or woman who is intensely curious about how the world works and how they can improve their working worldview. It is for the person who is bold enough to question their beliefs about what they value, what value they can offer the world, and in turn receive from it. These words are for those who do not accept limitations at face value, automatically believe what others believe, or follow rules for the sake of following them, regardless of where they live in the world or the forces currently controlling their choices. Mm. Does that answer your question? I'm not sure. No, uh, I, because I, I think it does. <laughs> it's, it's not as easy to, to categorize as like, well, this is for startup entrepreneurs who want to 10x their sales, you know, which is how mm. most marketing and business books are sold these days, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, this is for people who want a paradigm shift, who want to completely change their understanding of how the world works in terms of economies and business and what money is and how we engage productively with the world. This is not about how do I build a better business? That's a product of this, that, that, mm -hmm. that will definitely happen if you understand, but these are like, this is like understanding physics first before you try to build an airplane or a skyscraper, mm. right? And most people don't ever learn these principles, maybe because our cultures for some reason teaches us that there aren't objective economic principles. Like that seems to be a common belief that 
the economy just works however we want it to. Like that's yeah. the bureaucratic way of thinking. We could just pass whatever law we want and get the result we want, completely mm-hmm. ignoring, no, that's not how people make choices. That's not how, how production models work or the concept of efficiency or you cannot force people to act against their nature. You just like you cannot break the laws of physics. And so this is for the book for the person who understands that maybe there are some limitations in their current understanding of how money works, mm. how how society works, whether because they live in a post-communist economy like here in Armenia, where there are obvious cultural shortcomings, or even people in the West who take their knowledge for granted and realize maybe they don't have a complete picture because mm. they're struggling to figure out how to apply their knowledge and skills to engage productively with the world. That was my position for a long time till I learned all this shit. I had some really good mentors, read a lot of really good books, but there was a time where I was really frustrated, like in my early twenties, where I knew I was really smart. I knew I was really skilled in a lot of ways, but I could not see how do I fit into the corporate world or, or the economy? Why, why aren't I rich? Why aren't I uh, gainfully employed? Like there's some, something missing because mm. clearly I have a lot of value to offer. So why, why isn't this working for me? Well, it's because there are certain things missing in my paradigm about how all this works. And by learning them, I feel very in control of my life now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, and as somebody who just finished the book, you provide all that. I, I am somebody who I'm like, I know how this stuff works, but I definitely learned some <laughs> things from your book aside from just, you know, uh, more of appreciation. Definitely. I think that's my number one thing, more of appreciation for the opportunities we have. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, just seeing the comparison and all that, but Gregory, I, I appreciate you coming on and hooking me up with the book so I could check it out. So uh, for everybody listening, where can they find the book and where can they find you? Because you write, you do all sorts of stuff. So where's the best place to follow you as well? The book is on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any other major online retailer. So check that out. Please leave public reviews after you do. That's a very important part of my, of my marketing and my social proof. Uh, if you'd like to hang out with me or send me an email, go to gregorydeal.net. Deal is spelled D-I-E-H-L or just send me an email at contact at gregorydeal.net. And um, yeah, we can, we can network or whatever yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah i found you on twitter we started talking there but yeah i will link all that stuff in the description gregory thanks so much and yeah we'll probably do this again when the next book comes out all right yeah definitely all right everybody i hope you enjoyed that conversation with gregory deal about his book i know i love talking with him uh him and i we we talked uh you know just a little bit here and there uh through like you know dms and things like that but i love this conversation he's a really interesting guy and i love just you know his perspective on things it's it's different and i really enjoyed this conversation and i know i gained a lot of value from it and learned a lot from him and his book and everything like that so if you thought this sounded interesting make sure you are following gregory grab a copy of his book he's written multiple books so go through read his other books as well they i guarantee They are different than anything else you've read on those topics. Like I mentioned, his book, The Influential Author, totally different, totally unique. I loved it. So head down in the description, follow Gregory, grab a copy of his book. And yeah, uh, in case uh, you're not yet, make sure you are following uh, The Rewired Soul on Instagram and Twitter. It's just at The Rewired Soul over on TikTok as well. And a few quick ways to help support the podcast that are a thousand percent free, don't cost you a penny. One, share this episode. If you thought this was interesting uh, and other people might benefit from it, share it out on social media. And the other thing you could do takes two seconds, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and leave a review. All these things help out a ton with spreading the word, all right? But some other things that you could do help support the podcast, uh, which uh, helps me as a little bit of an entrepreneur myself, one, head over to the rewiredsoul.com, check out some of the books that I have written over there on, you know, mental health, uh, addiction and recovery. I also wrote a book about my experience being canceled. You can check those out. Uh, another great way to support the podcast where you get uh, a little bit of a perk yourself, uh, become a subscriber over on Substack. It's $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get all these episodes a day early. All right. And then lastly, 
If you're interested, there was an affiliate link down below for better help online therapy. Uh, I care a ton about mental health. I've actually, you know, just released that episode um, with Carl Fisher about, you know, addiction recovery and we talk about mental health and all that stuff. So if you're somebody who's looking to improve your mental health as well, head down to the description, check out that affiliate link for better help online therapy. It's affordable. It's online. You work with a licensed therapist. It's awesome. It helped me out a ton. All right. But anyways, another huge thanks to Gregory for coming on. He is all the way in Armenia. So it was difficult uh, aligning our schedules. So I appreciate him coming on. Make sure you check out his book. It's linked down in the description below. Yeah. For all of you, I have another episode coming for you this week. So make sure that you stay tuned. But until then, have an amazing rest of your day and I will see you next time.